Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, born in 1921. He was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. He dedicated his life and earnings to seed and grow the ministry of Langham Partnership. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word, carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. Today's sermon from 1989 comes from the series, Who Is This Jesus? and is entitled, Son of David. Well, we begin tonight, as uh, we have been reminded once or twice, a series of three evening sermons under the general title, Who is this Jesus? It is a question of capital importance. It is a question that was uh, being asked by people during the public ministry of Jesus. Do you remember... When he forgave somebody's sins for the first time, people who heard him asked in astonishment and indignation, who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God only? A little later, he stilled a storm on the Lake of Galilee, and even his apostles asked, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then at the beginning of the last week of his ministry, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds acclaimed him with their hosannas. And we read, the whole city was stirred and said, Who is this? So the question was being asked, when he was engaged in his public ministry on earth. But it's also a question that people are asking today. I think, for example, of that great man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the 1940s, in one of Hitler's uh, prisons or concentration camps at Flossenburg, before he was himself executed, writing what came to be known as letters and papers from prison. One of the things he wrote is the question that bothers me incessantly is who is Jesus for us today? Well, my friends, I hope you're asking that question too. It's been asked all down the centuries and it is vital for us to ask it today. Who is this Jesus whose name we have taken upon our lips so many times already this evening? Well, the first answer that we are to give is that he is the son of David. It's a good answer in a way, partly because it's an unusual one. If I were to say, who is this Jesus? I doubt very much if any of you would have replied, he's the son of David. You wouldn't have begun there. You probably would have begun somewhere else. 
So it's a good answer because it, uh, it's a surprising one. But it's also a good answer because it sets Jesus in his historical context. So why don't you think with me for a little bit about David? King David, thousand or so years before Christ, was without any doubt whatsoever one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament. Indeed, some people would say that he rivals Abraham and Moses in being the most prominent figure in the Old Testament. Did you know, for example, that the second part of the first book of Samuel, the whole of the second book of Samuel, and the whole of the first book of Chronicles, two and a half long Old Testament books, are wholly devoted to the story of David. You know, of course, that most of the Psalms were written by David. David was the second of Israel's kings. He came between Saul and Solomon. And although he was guilty in one particularly disgraceful episode, of, for, uh, guilty of lust, deceit, adultery, and murder, nevertheless, he was called a man after God's own heart, probably because of the depth and the sincerity of his repentance. But above all, as was read to us in the lesson a few minutes ago, God made David a quite extraordinary promise. David had wanted to build God a house, the temple, and God said, no, I'm going to build you a house, namely his dynasty or throne or household. And God promised that he would establish the kingdom and the throne and the dynasty of David forever. Forever. Israel never forgot that promise. They called it God's everlasting covenant with David. And that promise of God to David that his throne would last forever shaped the hope of Israel for the future. And some of the prophets realized with the kind of clarity that God gave to them as recipients of his revelation that God would fulfill his promise not so much in an endless succession of Davidic kings, but in one son of David, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, descended indeed from David, but who himself would reign forevermore. Isaiah called him a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which was the name of David's father who would occupy the throne of David. Jeremiah called him a righteous branch who would sprout from David's line. Ezekiel called him one shepherd, God's servant David, who would be their king forever. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been discovered quite recently that the Qumran community, the Essene community in the desert of Judea, was expecting the Messiah to be a descendant of David. Now all that is the background, you see, to the New Testament. So it's not at all surprising that the gospel writers, 
particularly the synoptic evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, emphasized that Jesus was the son of David. Both the genealogies, you know, don't you, there are two genealogies of Jesus, one given by Matthew, one given by Luke, and whether they were the genealogies of Mary, as some people think, or of Joseph, whose legal heir Jesus became when he married Mary and therefore adopted her son, whichever the genealogy is, it traces Jesus' descent through David. David is a prominent person in the genealogies of Jesus. Then Mary was promised that the Lord God would give her boy to be born the throne of his father David. Luke 1.32 Joseph was addressed by the angel as the son of David and because he was the house and, and lineage of David he took Mary when the time for the imperial census came to the city of David, Bethlehem, to be registered, which is where the son of David was born. And then when the shepherds announced his birth to the shepherds, the angels announced his birth to the shepherds, they said, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I think it's rather wonderful that later in the public ministry of Jesus, Matthew, who is more interested in all, than all the other evangelists in, the, in Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament, records no fewer than five separate occasions on which somebody addressed him, Son of David, have mercy on me, or Hosanna to the Son of David. Matthew is in no doubt whatever that Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises that the Messiah would be descended from David. Well, all that is the background. But you know, there is something more important still on which I want to focus tonight. And it leads me to ask you to open your Bible for my text. And in the New Testament uh, section of the Bible... Because the more important thing still is that Jesus' descent from David was part of Paul's gospel. Let me read you Romans 1, 1 to 4, page 142. We all know Romans is Paul's great manifesto of the Christian good news. And he begins with a reference to it. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And what is the gospel of God, Paul? Well, leave out verse 2 for a moment. Verse 3, it is the gospel concerning his son. And what does the good news tell us about his son? That he was descended from David according to the flesh and designated the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And though I'm not going to ask you to turn to this, there is a very similar, a very parallel statement in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, where he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, 
risen from the dead and descended from David as preached in my gospel. Now both those texts, Romans 1, 1 to 4 and 2 Timothy 2, 8, both of them refer to Paul's gospel and both of them say that Jesus' descent from David was part of the good news. I think that's especially relevant tonight, Mission 89 Sunday. Because if we are thinking about evangelism, we must think about the evangel. You can't think about spreading the good news unless you think about the good news that is going to be spread. And therefore, any of us who are going to be involved in Mission 89, when Billy Graham comes in, in June, must be clear ourselves on what the good news is. And whether the, these phrases, descended from David according to the flesh, designated the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, whether those words are an original utterance of Paul, or whether, as some commentators think, Paul is actually quoting from an even earlier Christian confession of faith, which he is himself endorsing, whichever way, it is a very finely chiseled statement of the good news. God's good news concerns Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what we are told about him is in two complementary phrases. See how beautifully they are balanced. Look down again at your text. On the one hand, he was descended from David, and on the other, he was powerfully designated the Son of God. Seed of David, Son of God. Again, his descent from David was according to the flesh. It referred to his human nature. His designation as God's son was according to a spirit of holiness, which may, mean, may refer to his divine nature, or possibly it refers to, to the power of the Holy Spirit. Then again, he was descended from David by birth, but he was designated God's son by resurrection. This careful balance between son of David, son of God, according to the flesh, according to the spirit, born the one, resurrected to be the other, this very carefully balanced statement immediately exposes our customary imbalance. For if I'm not greatly mistaken, when we, let me talk about myself, when I say we, when we preach the gospel, we try to demonstrate that he was the Son of God. We're hardly concerned at all to show that he was also the Son of David. Again, we focus on his death and resurrection, and rightly so, but I'm afraid we seldom even mention his birth. We declare his discontinuity with the past because of the new thing that God has done in raising him from the dead. And we neglect his continuity with the past in fulfillment of old promises which God made a thousand years previously. We present him as the divine saviour 
we rarely present him as the Davidic king. So in order to grasp our tendency to imbalance, I want to ask you to think with me about just the first of the two parts of the couplet, mainly, namely, descended from David according to the flesh. Why is that an important part of the gospel? What does it imply? And I want to suggest to you that it contains three truths, which I will only enlarge upon quite briefly, but which I will attempt to sum up. I don't know whether this will help you to remember them or not, but in one word each, the word continuity, humanity, and royalty. First, continuity. The coming of Jesus was not a random event that nobody was expecting, and it was not a divine afterthought. True, it was the inauguration of the new age, but it was in fulfillment of old promises. God had made an eternal covenant with David a thousand years previously that his dynasty and his throne and his reign would last forever. And Jesus coming, have you got my text open? Look down at verse 2, the bracket I left out. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Christ's coming was in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament promises. And the apostles kept repeating this in their sermons that are recorded in the Acts of the Apostles and in their letters that followed. For example, Paul's great statement in 1 Corinthians 15, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Frequently they quoted Old Testament texts in evidence of this continuity. Jesus, when he came, was in direct continuity with the Old Testament prophecies. Now, I venture to say that the truth of continuity is urgently needed by men and women today. Because so many of our fellow men and women whom we long to take with us to hear Billy Graham are rootless. They have no sense of history. They have no sense of their own identity in regard to history. They do not see that they have any place in the historical sequence of events. No, they drift like plankton on the ocean of meaninglessness. And they have neither past nor future to give them any identity or any security. And we have to say to them that God is the God of history. God has been working and will continue to work from the creation to the consummation, from the very beginning to the end of time. This is the God we believe in. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He's the God of Joshua and the judges and the kings. He's the God of King Saul and King David and King Solomon. He's the God of the prophets. 
And of that history, the turning point and watershed was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, who was the fulfillment of the past and is the guarantor of the future. How glorious is this note of continuity that Jesus is the historical Jesus fulfilling the past and guaranteeing the future. But then second, I move from continuity to humanity. For if Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, this was because of his physical birth, his human birth. The son of David, Jesus the son of David, did not pretend to be a human being. He was a human being. And then Jesus of Nazareth, descended from David according to the flesh, God took human nature to himself once and for all and forever. Jesus was and is the one and only God-man. Fully God, fully man. Perfect in manhood, perfect in Godhead. And in no other human being, either before him or since him, has God ever become flesh and entered into our humanness to perfection as Jesus did. And because Jesus is the unique God-man, fully God and fully man, he is the only person qualified to be the mediator between God and man. He can mediate between us and God because he is both human and divine. And there is something more than that in the importance of the humanness of Jesus. Because of the humanness of Jesus, he's able to understand our human weakness. It's the epistle to the Hebrews that lays most emphasis on this, I think, in the New Testament. It says that because we are creatures of flesh and blood, he became a creature of flesh and blood. Because of our humanness, he became human. Again, because we are tempted, he too was tempted, though he never sinned. But because he was tempted as we are tempted, he's able to sympathize with us in our frailty. Because we suffer, he suffered. And because we die, he died in our place. So, weakness, temptation, suffering, and death are four human experiences with which Jesus deliberately identified in order that he might be able to understand and sympathize with us in our humanity. All that is involved in calling him the son of David according to the flesh. Continuity. Humanity. And thirdly, royalty. Because the David we're talking about was not any old bloke. The David we're talking about was King David. Israel's first faithful king. The first king was Saul, but he was rejected because of a threefold unfaithfulness. So David was Israel's first faithful king. 
And although his kingdom is far from perfect, I've already mentioned his very serious lapse. Nevertheless, people look back to the reign of David as at least approximating to the ideals of kingship that God had laid down, and they look forward to the day when the son of David, the anointed Messiah, would arise, and in whose kingdom the ideals of kingship would be perfectly exemplified. And there is no clearer statement of what those marks of God's kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, are than in that very familiar Christmas passage in Isaiah 9 about the boy to be born with his fourfold name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Because you know that text so well, let me draw out the four characteristics of the kingdom of God, the Davidic kingdom, which are outlined in that passage. First, as the Prince of Peace, his reign would be peaceful, whereas David shed much blood in warfare. Then secondly, it would be upheld, we're told in Isaiah 9, by justice and righteousness, whereas David from time to time was guilty of injustice and unrighteousness. Thirdly, it would increase without end. It would become a worldwide kingdom, whereas David ruled only over Palestine. And fourthly, it would last forever, whereas David's reign lasted only for 40 years. So there are four marks of the royalty of the son of David, who is the son of God. Four marks of the Davidic kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. It is characterized by peace and justice. It is universal in its extent, and it is everlasting in its duration. And that is what we are claiming for Jesus when we call him the son of David. So let me conclude. Here is our first answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Answer, he's the son of David. And to call him the son of David is to affirm the continuity, the humanity, and the royalty of Jesus as part of the gospel. And if we are to maintain this biblical balance, we must present Jesus not only as fully divine, but also as fully human. Not only as the guarantor of the future, who's coming again in glory, but as the fulfillment of the past and of all the prophecies of God. Not only as the Savior, but also as the King whose reign will be peaceful, just, universal, and everlasting, and to whom all human beings, including ourselves, owe their homage. King Jesus, the Son of David. Hallelujah. Let us pray. We have a moment or two in which to be silent. Let us, in the silence, acknowledge Jesus 
as the son of David. Let's meditate on his continuity with the Old Testament, his perfect humanness, his royalty as king. Let us bring him our worship. King Jesus, son of David, we worship you. We praise you tonight for your direct continuity with centuries of Old Testament expectation that you fulfilled. We thank you for your perfect humanness entering into our weakness, our frailty, our temptations, our sufferings, and even our death. Thank you for your royalty that you reign in peace and justice and will do forever. And as we worship you, we desire to bring you the homage of our hearts, that we may give to you the glory that is due to your name. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.